Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals within the political economy to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our archives again and was recorded in August of 2014 between our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Paul Craig Roberts. Dr. Roberts served as an assistant secretary for economic policy under the Reagan administration, where he worked on supply-side reforms like the Kemp Roth Bill. He is currently the chairman of the Institute for Political Economy and has written numerous books regarding international economics. We hope you enjoy this talk and check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Dr. Roberts, uh, why don't you correct the supply-side economics concept relative to Keynesian as as an opener here, because I think that's very important. Reaganomics gets a tag of some simplified, trickle-down economics, and I think that if you correct the supply-side aspect of it, we can go by the Reaganomics idea and get into the the interview. But uh, if you discuss your version of supply-side economics and why it was so important as a correction of Keynesianism. Well, it really goes back to um, the beginnings of the explanation of price formation. Uh, There was an argument between economists whether price was determined by uh, the cost of production, that is by supply, or whether it was determined by demand, that is what people were willing to pay for it. And this argument went on until Alfred Marshall appeared and said that that argument is like arguing which blade of the scissors cuts the paper, that both supply and demand determine price. Well, it's that idea was missing in macroeconomics because in the Keynesian model, uh, monetary and fiscal policy only affect the aggregate demand curve. If you raise or lower taxes, you would shift demand. You would either increase consumer demand with a reduction in taxes, or you would reduce consumer demand with an increase in taxes. And what the supply side economists added was that changes in fiscal fiscal policy, such as changes in the marginal rate of taxation, Uh, can shift the aggregate supply schedule. And this was the the completion then of macroeconomics. It got it off of the one blade of the scissors and brought in both blades of the scissors. What the supply side economists were able to demonstrate, and this was uh, later incorporated by Paul Samuelson into the 12th edition of his famous economics textbook, what uh, we were able to show was that changes in marginal tax rates affect two important relative prices. One is is the price that determines uh, the trade-off between current consumption and saving. The higher the tax rate on investment income, the cheaper 
it is to consume in the present because the higher the tax rate on investment income, it, the less future income you give up by consuming today. So if you were to lower the marginal tax rate, you would raise the opportunity cost of current consumption in terms of foregone future income. So this would encourage more savings for the future. Okay, let me interject right there because I think the point is clear. Now let's assume that applies in a closed economy, which the United States was around 1970 for the most part. All of a sudden, a dramatic shift has occurred and it changed the dynamic of America significantly. And you're, you are the economist that kind of pointed that out. And I want to start from that point moving forward. Why all of a sudden was it uh, de rigueur to outsource all of a sudden out of our closed economy in a tremendous unconstrained way, which of course would negate the balance of uh, macroeconomic fine-tuning in, in, in our relatively closed economy. What accounted for this massive shift, and how important was it? I, as an old-line manufacturing executive who believes in keeping manufacturing and the learning-by-doing skills and the, and the related companies in manufacturing together, was appalled at that outsourcing at the time. I was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company back in the day, in a manufacturing company uh, to boot, and I saw what was being lost. Why then? Uh, and that in effect negates the goodness of supply and macro uh, in, a, in a macro contents, right there. Well, the main event was the collapse of the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it caused uh, rethinking in China and in socialist India. And the two countries had closed economies to Western capital. But the collapse of the Soviet Union and the uh, appearance of the end of history argument that there was no alternative now to American democratic capitalism and it proved its superiority, this caused the China and India to open up their vast underutilized labor forces and so American firms found, in fact, all first world firms, but uh, initially, primarily the American ones, uh, they found they could dramatically drop their labor cost by moving their manufacturing jobs to Asia. The next step in this was the rise of the high-speed internet, because that made it possible to also offshore tradable professional skills such as software engineering, uh, research, design, the kinds of jobs that the uh, college, American college graduates uh, formerly could look forward to. These could now be moved offshore. Well, let me say, let me say this. Let me interject there, uh, Dr. Roberts. Okay, that, that's an obvious move, but if we look at the American history, American history uh, was able to compete with high wages and high labor for 200 years without necessarily offshoring its manufacturing capability and, and could compete with high labor costs. Uh, by arbitraging, let's say, labor, for example, wouldn't the economic planners in Washington know that there would create an imbalance? There would be no purchasing power corresponding 
to those low wages to come back and clear any, any products that came in without inflating loans and debt as the contra. And ultimately, that would hollow out an economy. That had to be a known effect, yes or no? Uh, no, there's no there's no evidence that it was known. Um, in fact, it's still denied. Uh, in fact, quite rigorously denied, because the uh, the offshoring of jobs is interpreted as the operation of free trade, and therefore the claims are made that it is mutually beneficial and that the United States is benefiting from the offshoring of these jobs. But the fallacy, of course, is uh, free trade theory, Ricardo's tra free trade theory assumes not moving capital, for example, along with uh, uh, a free trade concept. You, once you undermine your own economy, all bets are off as to, as to the benefits of free trade. I think Gomery conclusively proves that. Uh, yes, it's true. Um, the, free, the free trade theory is problematic even in its own terms. And it's also true that the free trade theory requires that uh, a, com a country seek its comparative advantage at home. It finds out where its comparative advantage is at home. <clears throat> and therefore, that implies the capital stays at home and finds the most effective use. And offshoring is not pursuit of comparative advantage, it's pursuit of absolute advantage. They're looking for the lowest factor costs. And so it is not free trade. And I'm not uh, saying that it is. I'm saying that it is interpreted as free trade by the economics profession. Who should know better, uh, They should know better, but and maybe they don't, or maybe they're shills for the offshoring. Well, let me give you a, let me give you a, uh, a scenario that, uh, of course, Henry George was, a, was a, uh, a free trader, but he was a free trader in a world that was, had comparabilities. You know, one country didn't have a dem demonstrable intellectual advantage or, or material advantage over another, and you, you, could, get, you could get away with it. I, I'm a restricted free trader, basically basically because of the problem you, you pointed out. But let's assume that this occurred and America is being hollowed out and, and jobs are being arbitraged away. I'm a New York guy. I'm, a, I'm an investment banker. I'm a Washington guy. I'm a military guy. I'm a Boston guy. I'm a technology guy. Those three cities are kind of the nexus of a very interesting compilation of power, wealth, money, brains, and uh, if I look at us as kind of an island that's basically trades with the world is uh, arbitrages factors all over the world, for us, this is not so bad what you've pointed out. The rest of the country may suffer, may become a North Argentina. But for the big guys in, in these areas, why should they worry about the things you point out and the things I agree with? Interesting. Any comments on that? <laughs> Well, for the CEOs themselves, um, it's in their interest because their interests, generally speaking, are short term. I don't think there are very many uh, public corporations in which the CEO comes in to office at a young age and stays there for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And so uh, most of them come in uh, when they're about 60 
and they have a few years in which to really make their fortune before they retire. And so for them, if you can drop your labor costs by offshoring your jobs, your profits go up and therefore your uh, bonus component of your salary, which is the largest component, uh, goes up. And so you can maximize your income by offshoring the jobs. Now, as you have already noted earlier in our conversation, the aggregate effect over time is to destroy the American consumer market because the people who were uh, working uh, in, say, uh, textile uh, apparel manufacturing, making maybe thirty-five, dollars $40,000 a year, uh, they end up working as a retail clerks for $16,000 a year. And the difference uh, in their income essentially kills off any discretionary spending capability. Well, if I can borrow, if I can borrow the money, if I can borrow the difference, if, if uh, uh, monetary authorities are accommodative, allow me to inflate mortgage demand, credit card demand, I can defer the, the uh, devastating effects for maybe 30 or 40 years, which I think occurred. That being the case, is, would you agree that that's the no, case? No, it can't defer that long. And this, this, this policy is what Alan Greenspan used when he saw that there wasn't any uh, growth in real median family income, and therefore there was nothing to drive the economy. That is when Greenspan, as Fed chairman, initiated uh, the, the credit expansion uh, that substituted the growth in consumer debt for the missing growth in consumer income. So how, that's how in the early part of, the, of this new century, the early part of the 21st century, uh, they were able to keep the consumer demand growing and to keep some growth in the economy. But very quickly, of course, uh, debt reached its limit. Uh, people can't uh, acquire debt indefinitely when their income's not growing. <laughs> and when the ability of people to uh, acquire any more debt ran out, the bubble broke. Uh, the real estate market collapsed. And the economy really hasn't done anything since. So it's a short-term step you can use to substitute the growth in consumer debt for missing growth in consumer debt. Let me just comment on that. I think that's clear, but again, I'm a New York, Boston, and Washington guy. I mean, we're military, we're finance, we're technology, we're international. Uh, why should I worry about the lack of purchasing power in the hinterlands? Let's, I'm being the devil's advocate here. Since I'm insulated, I think, from that. Uh, my money's ready to go anywhere. I'm ready to travel to London, Frankfurt, Berlin, uh, any place, and get away from the effects of, let's say, a, 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 a downsizing of the American middle and working class. And where were? the middle class and, and, and working people politically uh, in stopping or seeing or, or avoiding this, in effect, catastrophe? Well, uh, first of all, you can't escape it because it eventually comes back to you uh, in 
the dollar's loss of value. Because if your economy isn't growing, but your debt is, and you're having to issue more debt to finance the federal budget, but you also have to issue more debt in order to keep the banks that are too big to fail from failing. And so the world is flooded with the issue of dollars and debt, and but not with an increase in the real output of American goods and services that match the growth in the supply of dollars and the supply of debt. The pressure then builds on the dollar itself, uh, builds on its exchange value, and builds on its role as reserve currency. And, and then you see people, because the rest of the world has been accumulating dollars since the end of World War II. <laughs> they have a tremendous amount of dollars, and when they see what looks to be a no end into the supply of new dollars is not matched by the output of goods and services. They say, what is happening to the value of our dollar-based assets? And do we want to keep acquiring them? And you see then the countries pull back from purchasing U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, you see them looking for alternative uh, stores of value, such as gold. We see the enormous accumulation of gold now in Asia. We see a pressure on the dollar from the rising price of gold. You know, during the, the 21st century, we've seen an enormous increase in the price of gold, peaking in 2011. And what have we seen since is the Federal Reserve realizes that the rising price of gold is a threat to the dollar and to the Fed's policy of quantitative easing, and therefore they suppress the rising price of gold by selling naked shorts. They dump massive amounts of, of uh, uh, futures contracts you know, on the market in the least uh, uh, tradable periods when there's actually no uh, trading going on, and they come in and dump huge quantities of contracts and drive down the price. And that then produces uh, stop loss orders, it produces margin calls, more sales, and this is the way they've controlled the price of gold since 2011. You would, you would, you would argue that a reserve currency is the sine qua non of American uh, staying power. And I think we would fight to maintain the dollar as a reserve currency because what would our alternative be? As long as we keep the, the reserve currency and, and payments of, for oil in the American dollar, we could probably do this indefinitely. What do you think? Uh, no, because the world is moving away from it. We've seen the formation of the BRICS, Brazil and uh, Russia, China, India, South Africa. Uh, that's about half of the world's population. Uh, they're forming up um, their own uh, banks, their own uh, reserve systems. They're going to transact their foreign trade with one another without using dollars. Uh, we've seen the energy uh, policy that uh, Russia and China 
recently came to terms on it. There's going to be no dollar use in the uh, sale of Russian energy to China. So we see increasingly countries moving away from um, using the dollar and the dollar payment system. And the United States is driving them away by its uh, use of sanctions. The only reason the United States can sanction a country uh, is because of the dollar payment system. If the country is not part of the dollar payment system, it can't be sanctioned. And we see that that uh, this was that the Russian response to the huffing and puffing in Washington about sanctions on Russia um, was to arrange the deal with China, in which the biggest energy deal of all time has no dollar role. So I think this is going to increase, that the dollar is in trouble, and uh, I think that the, uh, its abuse, it's the way Washington abuses the role by threatening countries, imposing uh, sanctions, seizing their assets. Look what they recently did to the big French bank. You know, they stole $9 billion of the French bank. Uh, they're now doing the same thing to the big bank in Germany, the Commerce Bank. Uh, so, they're, so Washington really is starting to even create uh, opposition to it among its European puppet states. Let me ask you this then, uh, Paul. Why did we allow, American policymakers, allow it to reach this point? <laughs> Because they, they could have brought have, back American manufacturing. They could have changed tax laws to encourage it. They could have stopped it. They could have made all the, the offshore corporations like, like Apple, who have hordes of cash offshore, they could force all of that back and force manufacturing the source of, of really wealth and, 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 and jobs for most people back in the home territory if they wanted to, I believe. Your comment on that? Well, first of all, they have to recognize the problem. And um, they don't. You know, I wrote this book, The Failure of Laissez-Faire Capitalism and Economic Dissolution of the West. I laid it all out. <clears throat> uh, it's never been re <clears throat> reviewed in an economics journal <clears throat> or in the mainstream media. It's reviewed all over the place on the Internet <clears throat> and Amazon. Um, and nobody in Washington has contacted me to say, wow, this is a serious problem. What can we do about it? And, and instead, the economics profession pretends that no such thing is happening. So you can say they're either completely stupid or they um, speak for interest groups that benefit from it. Okay, well, let's stop it right there. I mean, I, I assume that, the, that our government policy planners are not stupid at all. And our corporations... But they are. Stupid. I can tell you. I was among them. Well, I okay. Years. Wait, I was one of them. They are stupid. Well, generally They're speaking. They're completely stupid <laughs> in this sense. They're not stupid in terms of serving their own interests in, in helping some um, private interest group that then look after them when they leave government service. They're very clever in those ways. But in terms of thinking about the longevity of the country and the success through time of the country, they really have no incentive to do that. That's the point. I, and I would argue I'm an investment banker in New York. I'm your 60, year, 60 years old guy. I'm making a lot of money. Uh, my money's international. 
I'm everywhere. I own co corporations all over the world. I'm not wedded to a particular country. I don't care. I'm, I know I'm going to die in 20 years. I'm living it up now. Why should I care about anybody or anything when I've got my pile now? In a, in a, in a way, it's kind of the attitude. Why would I care? And who's going to make me care? <laughs> it, it, is the, it is the attitude. And, you know, it developed um, over the course of my lifetime. I remember when I was in university, uh, and we were taught that um, a corporation had responsibilities to shareholders, but it also had responsibilities to its employees, to its customers, and to its local communities. And that the function of a, of a CEO was to balance all of these responsibilities. Absolutely. I grew up in that same era. Right. Now, now, but... You know, by 1990, if not before, uh, the argument is that corporations are only responsible to the shareholders. They have no other responsibility, none to communities, none to uh, their employees, and none to the customers. They are responsible to the shareholders, and therefore they must always focus on increasing shareholder returns. And Wall Street enforced this with the threat, if you don't move offshore to China and get your profits up, we're going to finance a takeover of your company. So even, even executives that didn't want to abandon their home communities were forced to by the threat of Wall Street. So the whole attitude uh, of the executive class changed. And it no longer saw any responsibility other than the bottom line. And so if I can close down all my factories and send all the manufacturing abroad, and um, in fact, I can become a factoryless manufacturer. I don't even manufacture them abroad. I outsource it. <laughs> you know, that's what Apple does. Yes, absolutely. They, they don't even, and so we now have this new concept of factory-less manufacturers and what they're trying to do in Washington right now is to redefine Apple's outsourced offshore output as U.S. manufacturing okay. Okay. so that they can boost the share of manufacturing in the reports so that they can boost manufacturing employment because then all of Apple's employees become manufacturing employees even though they don't have a factory. And, and all of Apple's um, exports, say, of iPhones to Europe, they become counted as American exports. And the Apple computers and iPhones that come into the United States are no longer counted as imports. They are U.S. manufacturing output. So this is what they're trying to do right now as we speak. But that's contrary to all accounting. All accounting in history for GNP calculations. It's an absurdity on the face of it. I mean, you just don't do that. It's not, uh, it's, it's, it's worse than hedonic they pricing. They tend to do it. Well, I can understand why, but all the benefits of public comment. But all the benefits of the labor have defended it. Other people are attacking it. 
Okay. Well, then that begs the question, what were the American people do doing during this 30-year period where this was occurring in their own best interests, basically were being sacrificed? What could, what could they do? When, when they're told that, first of all, oh, you may be hurting, but overall, we're benefiting. That free trade always hurts a few people, but the general impact is to increase the overall welfare. So more people are benefiting than the few of you who are hurting. This was part of what, so they were told this. So what could they do? Well, the income statistics belie that. The distribution of income is, is direct evidence that that's not true. Well, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying what they were told. Now, and of course, the people aren't statisticians, and they don't know how to go find the evidence. And, but this is what the mainstream media would tell them. And then the next thing they were told is, well, it's just a question of retraining. We need to be retrained. <clears throat> but of course, any professional, uh, tradable professional skill can be offshored as well. So there's really nothing to retrain to. And, and so, they just got one line after the other. You know, we had this uh, uh, study by uh, Michael Porter at Harvard for the Competitive Competitiveness Council, and uh, he came out with this big study and claimed that this showed that the United States was benefiting greatly from jobs offshoring. He's simply wrong. I attacked, of course he's wrong. I attacked the study, and um, they replied to it, and I replied to that. But they simply ignore anything that doesn't suit them. Um, we had Matthew Slaughter. He was uh, on the Council of Economic Advisors for President Bush. Uh, he came out with a study that proved that offshoring jobs increased American jobs. Now, the way he proved this was he did not control for the fact that transnational corporations were buying up other corporations and adding existing jobs to their workforce. He counted that, you see, as, <laughs> as uh, an increase in employment from offshoring. He didn't control for the fact that some companies that had never before conducted uh, affairs overseas, started doing that. So he counted that as jobs created by offshoring. So in other words, it was a, a fake uh, study. Well, they do these things constantly. There are more of these coming up than you can expose. And so why do they do it? Well, I, my supposition is that, um, corporate income, corporate grants to departments is a very important part of, of academic life. And so they, to get the money, they serve the masters who bring it. And they're rewarded with the grants to the departments. They're rewarded with speaking fees, speaking engagements. Some of them even get uh, put on corporate boards. And so they have become spokesman for a policy that is destroying the country. Dr. Roberts, let me interject there. 
I mean, the American people can look at American history for a guide as to the correct course of action. If I go back to America, the time of Alexander Hamilton, he makes the observations that uh, no agricultural country, uh, hewers of wood and so forth, could ever be a first-rate uh, country. So he simply advocates manufacturing, even if it's inefficient on the homeland, and put up tariffs against manufacturing coming in. And America does this, and it goes from a nothing country in 1800 till by 1870, it's the leading manufacturing country in the world. And it does it by growing its own manufacturing, growing its own skills, learning by doing. Of course, it had a fortunate uh, benefit of being a, a country safe from invasion and a wide open frontier so that labor, if you pushed it down too far, could move west on you, forcing wages to be relatively high and it created a virtuous cycle of higher wages, lower rents because you can move away from it, autonomous manufacturing because you're keeping everybody out, and in the course of 70 years, you create an industrial colossus. Why would you violate those rules now? Unless it was for reasons of nationality or nationalism or a country doesn't count anymore in international reckoning. Well, I wouldn't, but I didn't have any say about it. And uh, you see, actually, what what happened was new in history. Uh, there never before had been uh, an opportunity to find massive supplies of labor uh, at a tiny fraction of the cost of domestic labor. For example, uh, when this offshoring of jobs began, uh, U.S. manufacturing workers were making maybe $25 an hour, and the American corporations could hire a Chinese at 25 cents an hour. Now look at the difference. You can see the leverage that does to profits. Okay, but I would all argue, the success look at, indicators. Look at Germany. Germany competes very well with labor higher than ours and sells to China and all over. Well, Andy, it, it, offshoring had nothing to do with competing. Uh, it's true the United States did not need to offshore in order to be competitive because the United States had the technology and the capital and the business know-how. And China and India did not have those things until the American corporations took them there. So offshoring was not a response to competitiveness. There was no danger to American competitiveness. It was purely greed. It was purely the drive for higher profits. Why didn't the Germans do that then? I think because the unions there are much stronger and that the uh, whole attitude of the country is different. And I don't think they went through the redefinition of what the manager's responsibility is. Uh, I don't think the German manager has been shorn of his obligation to the labor force, to his customers, to the communities, as they were here. So it was the rise of this notion that nobody has a claim on the corporation except the owners. And whatever happens to anybody else, as long as it benefits the owners, 
then the manager's doing what he's supposed to do. I don't think that has permeated, though it's beginning to permeate. Yeah, but, it, but I, I agree that that's a fair statement. In, in France, Germany, uh, Sweden, Norway, and so forth, all, all this being said, what possibilities do the average American person have to rekindle a decent standard of living? None, because they can't affect anything by voting. That's true, okay. And so uh, we, we've seen that over and over. All the hopes that were uh, part of the election of Obama, uh, all of them were disappointed and nothing changed. Um, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, they serve the same interest groups. There are about six powerful private interest groups and they run the country. They determine the laws that Congress passes, the bills that the president signs, their campaign contributions determine who's in office, not our votes. So the six groups, they are the people to whom the government is responsible. It's not responsible to the voters. It's responsible to Wall Street, to the military security complex, of which uh, President Dwight Eisenhower warned us <laughs> long ago, 1960. Uh, they are, uh, the, the government is responsible to agribusiness. You can see this so total. I mean, Monsanto, you can't even get labeling of that this is a genetically modified food. You can't even get the labeling because of the power of Monsanto. And then when states do it, like Vermont, Monsanto steps in with lawsuits. <laughs> um, then we have, of course, the extractive industries, timber, mining, energy. Look at the fracking that's going on. The, 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 in my opinion, the external or social cost of fracking is greater than the value of the oil and gas. They're destroying the water tables, the surface water, the underground water. We don't know what uh, are the uh, other consequences of all of the disruption of the underground structures, earthquakes. But again, consistent with the, the current thesis, if I can get my money out now and I can move it someplace else, I'm not going to worry about it, is the current zeitgeist, I would argue. Yes. You have a hard time moving Russia, it somewhere else. Yeah, what, what happens if China, Russia, they, they create their own blocks and their own insularity, uh, and American influence somehow is shut down from those areas, and it has to back back up on, let's say, the Americas uh, for sustenance. How do you think that would play out? They can't, the capital has to go somewhere. The purchasing power of, let's say, North and South America are basically devastated. Where do you go if you can't ultimately go to China and, and Russia and India? Because they build up their own autarkic structures and their own reserve currency. Where does that leave not only uh, the financiers of America, along with the ordinary people? Where can they go? Which way do they turn? That remains to be seen. They may not be able to go much of anywhere. If you look at the new rules that the uh, IRS is laying down, uh, what do they call it now, the 
factor or something like factor, where any foreign financial institution that has any American deposit has such enormous compliance costs that many of them are saying, we don't want any dollar deposits. Don't bring us any dollars. Uh, my son was in graduate school in England and could not find an English bank that would accept his account. Finally, the university had to persuade a bank to provide banking for its foreign students. So this, and, and these new regulations that they're already in effect, but they start biting very hard next July, July of 2015, because that's when the huge fines and impositions of, of uh, uh, felonies start applying to foreign institutions who don't comply with all the compliance costs of having dollar accounts. So we're creating a situation where nobody, where these people with the money can't take it anywhere because nobody wants it. And, and we also have a situation, Andy, where one of the, the, the main support system today for the dollar is that Japan is an American puppet state and the EU is an American puppet state. And so we can prevail on Japan and the EU to inflate the yen and the euro to keep the pressure off the dollar. Well, how long can we do that before the adverse consequences on Japan and the EU of inflating their own currencies to cover up the inflation of the American currency? At some point, they can't do this forever when they don't benefit and they're simply having to serve their imperial master. So at some point, that stops. But as long as we control the oil, let's assume we control the oil and energy, and we can price that to buy our way through this problem. Your comments on that? We don't control the oil and energy. Not, not in, in any way do we control it. I mean, Russians have tremendous uh, energy reserves. They're, we don't control the energy reserves in Iraq or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. Um, South America is... Uh, uh, essentially leaving the American orbit. If you uh, saw the recent uh, BRICS conference in Brazil, all the South American countries are there with Russia and China. People are tired of American bullying. The United States gave up diplomacy a long time ago. It doesn't, it has no diplomacy. It has threats and coercion. Do as we say, or we'll bomb you into the Stone Age. That's what we tell people. Do as we say, or we'll impose sanctions on you. Do as we say, or we'll invade. This is not diplomacy, and it's created and uh, angry responses all over the world to Washington, and people are looking for ways to get away from Washington. So now we see two. Uh, very strong, powerful countries, Russia and China, forming up to offer the rest of the world a different kind of leadership. And that's the big change that's going on. That's what's going to affect everything, is that if you look at Putin 
He doesn't say, do as I say, I'll bomb you in the Stone Age. He says, I'm here for you. We can work out something to our mutual benefit. I'm here for you. He says it over and over and over. And the Chinese are learning this. And so what you see rising is a different kind of leadership to Washington's leadership that is far superior and much preferred by everybody else in the world. So that it's going to be a challenge for Washington to hold on to its European puppets, to its Canadian puppet, to its Australian and New Zealand puppets, and to its Japanese and Korean puppets. Because the pull of this superior form of leadership that's arising in Russia and China is going to pull the whole world there. You can see it already in Germany. We have been beating up Germany and France as well. We've been beating up Germany and France to agree to much stronger sanctions on Russia. The sanctions we have now are meaningless. They sanction individual Russians. And they don't have any effect because any member of the Russian government is not permitted to have foreign bank accounts. <laughs> so they're, they're non-entity, these American sanctions. But we keep pressuring the Germans and the French to go along with real sanctions. And the German industry says, no, we've got 6,000 German companies doing business with Russia. What's going to happen to those companies, to the hundreds of thousands of workers? The French are saying the same thing. What? We can't sell the helicopter carriers to Russia that we have a contract for? What are we going to do with the workers in those industries? And so the pressure from within the countries on the puppets, Merkel is an American puppet, Hollande is an American puppet, the pressure is coming up now from the grassroots on these bought and paid for puppets. And they're having a hard time being the imperial uh, governor for the American interest in Germany and France. And so what you, what you see happening is the stress on the American European empire. It may break apart. It's entirely possible. This is why Putin has been anything but provocative in the Ukraine. This is the reason he hasn't sent in the Russian army to deal with the idiots that we stuck in power in Kiev is because he's telling Europe, look, that's what they do. This is what I do. Let's talk. Let's work it out. It's in our interest. Why are you hurting yourself to serve an imperial master who does nothing for you? So this is what's happening now in the world. This is the challenge, in my opinion having spent a quarter of a century in Washington at the top, Washington hasn't the wits to deal with this. They haven't the capability. They are wallowing in hubris and arrogance. They think that they are the final arbiter, the exceptional, indispensable people. Well, that tells everybody else that they're underlings. Yes. And the people everywhere in the world tired of hearing that they're underlings. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Uh, I'm not arguing with you because I essentially agree with your analysis. American tax policy, probably the easiest way for Americans to affect any change if change is possible. Uh, there could be some quick fixes, 
tax-wise, taxing offshore uh, profits, uh, taxing monopolies, and the like, if they could summon the will and the knowledge to do that, do you agree that they could turn things around if they approached it through tax policy changes first? See, who is they? The you're, assu you're assuming the government has power independently of the interest groups to which the government answers. And the government has no such power. Yes, if I was a dictator, uh, I could very easily fix the offshoring problem. I would simply stop taxing corporations the way they're taxed. I would tax them according to where they produce their product. So if they produce at home, they'd have a very low tax rate. If they produce abroad, they'd have a very high tax rate. And I can offset the labor cost advantage of producing abroad with the taxes. But Washington can't do that because the corporations are opposed to it. And they can't do something that corporations won't accept. So how are they going to force the corporations to do what the corporations don't want when the corporations control the political contributions and have the lobbies, the lobbyists and the powerful interest groups? And that Wall Street also backs up the corporations because Wall Street likes the higher profits that come from the offshore production. So the change, the change is theoretical. Yes, you and I, Andy, we could sit down and dream up ways, but there's no way to implement them because the government's not going to do it. They can be blocked. There's no power in the government independent of these interest groups. I really can't argue with you because I totally agree with your, your viewpoint. It's, uh, it's a viewpoint that's, I think, pretty well supported and, and agreed upon by, by many people. Of course, we do not push the levers of power. And uh, nothing may be able to be done for, for the average American in this situation. But again, these corporations and the, the offshoring, where can they eventually land? Where can they go? If, if they milk it here, where do they go with the money once that's done? It's not like you can continue to run forever. There may be nowhere to go. And furthermore, you know, if what we face is collapse, you know, maybe slow, maybe sudden, then what happens to all these offshore entities? They're simply seized by the host countries. So what, what, what these corporations have done, they've made themselves very vulnerable. I mean, why does China need them any longer? It has the technology, the know-how. It's probably got more capital than anybody else. Certainly doesn't have massive trade deficits. Uh, the, the debt is not uh, 100% or 200% of the GDP of China. So these countries are in powerful positions. And the United States is in a weak position and instead of pulling in its horns and trying to rebuild its basis, it's going pell-mell ahead in the same way, alienating people, powering out the economy. Now, as you know, Andy, uh, the first quarter GDP came in almost 3% negative growth. It 
they've made an effort to blame this on the weather. <laughs> but of course, Canada has even worse weather and they had positive first quarter growth. <laughs> so what if the second quarter comes in negative? As it surely will. I mean, they'll try to hide it. They'll, they'll play games with numbers. They'll do all the usual. But if it's too big to be hidden, and we have two negative quarters, that means a recession. Well, what does this mean then about quantitative easing? It didn't produce a recovery. The most massive money creation and the most massive deficit creation in American history had no impact. The economy has not recovered, it's back in recession. What is the consequence of this? Then, as the economy, if it goes back into recession, what about the debt, the deficit? It gets bigger. The rest of the world is looking at this. And what do they see? A basket case. How can this be corrected? And so you could see a, a very quick uh, reduction in American so I think we'll just have to wait and see. See how it plays uh, out. How it plays out. Now, if you get a bad enough crisis, then then interest groups can be overcome. I understand. Your uh, reputation is well-deserved. Uh, you're a voice in the wilderness, hopefully not alone. Uh, you're an inspiration to many of us. Well, Andy, I appreciate this opportunity that you've given me. Thank you very much. And that's it for this edition of Smart Talk. In the upcoming shows, we will be talking to such renowned writers as Nicholas Wade, author of A Troublesome Inheritance, who argues controversially that genetics plays a dominant role in determining economic success. We'll also sit down with Mason Gaffney, the leading Georgia economist in the country, who argues for a total restructuring of our tax laws. Please post your questions or comments on our website at www.henrygeorgeschool.org. I'm Andrew Rizzoni. We will see you again next time.